Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. Hopefully by now, you are very familiar with 1 Corinthians 15. Over the course of camp last week, David, Spencer, and Chris all preached sermons from this chapter. Your quiet times from that week were also based in this chapter. So originally... I was planning to preach an overview of the entire chapter to serve as a review of what you had learned. The problem is, and David mentioned this briefly, is we skipped a piece of chapter 15. As far as I can remember, this piece, verses 35 through 49, got little more than one mention in one sermon. And this little piece is just too good to miss because it has some of the best illustrations and descriptions of the resurrection in the entire Bible. So forget the overview, we're going for the gold in verses 35 through 49. The title of our sermon tonight is, What Will My Resurrection Body Be Like? What Will My Resurrection Body Be Like? For time's sake, I'm going to assume that you are already familiar with the rest of chapter 15. You already know from verses 1 through 11 that the resurrection is essential to the gospel and has reliable witnesses. You know from 12 through 19 that the resurrection is key to our hope and that if Christ is not raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And you remember from 20 through 28, the timeline of the resurrection, that it will begin with the rapture, followed by the tribulation, ending in the 1,000-year kingdom, and finally the eternal kingdom. And hopefully you took to heart that quote from verse 29 through 34, one of my favorite quotes. It says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> the unbeliever's perspective on life. And finally, skipping over to verses 50 through 58, you remember Christ's ultimate victory over death when he transforms our bodies at the resurrection to be just like his. But let's go to our passage for tonight, starting in verse 35. Verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15 reads, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul here, speaking on behalf of someone else, opens with two questions. First, how are the dead raised? And second, with what kind of body do they come? These questions seem innocent enough. But then Paul slams the guy saying, You fool! From our perspective, this is a little harsh. Imagine if uh, one of you raised your hand to ask me a question, but instead of answering the question, I just call you a dummy, and then keep going <laughs> with what I'm saying. That would be inconsiderate, to say the least. But what Paul is doing is very different. He knows that there are people in the Corinthian church who are doubting the resurrection. He addressed these people earlier in verse 12, saying, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what Paul is doing here is speaking directly to his opponents, those people who question the possibility of the resurrection. So, this is the picture that you should have. Imagine this. Paul is speaking directly to the Corinthian church. Not in a letter, not long distance. He is right with them. And then, this one guy raises his hand. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Everyone knows he's not really just asking, you know, how does it happen? What's 
how is this going to come out? Like, what he's asking is, how is it possible for the dead to be raised? How can God possibly take all the pieces of my body and put them back together again? What if my body is lost at sea? What if it's burned to a crisp? What if part of my body gets mixed up with someone else's body? Believe it or not, that was a real fear back then. (laughs) There's no way that God could put my body back together perfectly. So that's why Paul answers, You fool! This wise guy is not innocently curious. He is questioning the very possibility of the resurrection, doubting that God will be able to put us together again. But after a short outburst, Paul gives two simple answers, two simple answers to these questions. The structure of our passage this evening is going to follow this question-answer format. Question one, answer one. Question two, answer two. We will spend a short time answering question one, and the majority of our time answering question two. Let's see. So, question one for tonight. How are the dead raised? Question one, how are the dead raised? And remember, what this guy is really saying is, how can the dead be raised? How is this possible? Short answer. Before you rise, you must die. So question one, how are the dead raised? Answer one. Before you rise, you must die. Verse 36 reads, That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul is playing the part of Captain Obvious here. You fool! You can't come to life unless you die first. How is God supposed to raise you up and if you're still alive? It doesn't make sense. Or another way to put it is this. Your death is step one in the process of your resurrection. But just in case his opponent didn't get the point, Paul gives an illustration. In verses 36-37, it says, That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. This is a farming illustration. Now, maybe some of you are the plant type, and you understand exactly what Paul is saying. However, I am not the plant type. I had to look this up online. Do seeds really die? It turns out, yes, seeds really do die. In fact, Jesus used the same illustration in John twelve twenty four. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, the point is not for you to feel sorry for your little tomato plants. The point is that the seed that you put in the ground, once it grows into a plant, that seed no longer exists. The plant will produce lots of other seeds that look a whole lot like the first seed. But the first seed you put in the ground is gone. You'll never see it again. Now, we can laugh at plants. As far as I know, none of you are crying over the poor little apple seeds that you threw away after your lunch yesterday. But when we're talking about people, brothers and sisters in Christ, the story is a little different. What Paul is saying here is a comfort to us, though, because what he means is that when believers die, they are not disappearing forever. They are just taking step one in the process of their resurrection. 
Or as Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 4, they cannot wake up unless they first fall asleep. So, question one. How are the dead raised? Answer one. Before you rise, you must die. Our second question is going to occupy the bulk of our time tonight. And unlike question one, this answer is not so simple. So Paul is going to give three illustrations followed by four descriptions. So question two, with what kind of body do they come? With what kind of body do they come? Just a week ago, while we were at summer camp, someone in my small group asked this question. What will our resurrected bodies be like? I didn't call him a fool. It was a good question. He was, he was genuinely curious to know. But someone pointed out that even Jesus still had the scars in his hands and his side even after his resurrection. So does that mean our new bodies will be just like our old bodies? Yes and no. So it's not easy to explain. So Paul makes it easy by giving us three illustrations, um, three illustrations of our resurrection body. So this is under question two. Now we've got three illustrations. The first has to do with plants, the second with animals, and the third with space. First illustration of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body is like a plant. Look at verse 37 again. In that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. This is Agriculture 101. The seed you sow is not the plant you will get. Imagine how disappointing this would be. You put an apple seed in the ground, and you come back 10, 15, 20 years later looking for this awesome apple tree. And what do you get? It grew an apple seed. It doesn't make sense. That's not what you were looking for. You wanted a tree, not a seed. In the same way, the body is like a seed. When someone dies and is buried, it is like they are being sown in the ground. They are a seed waiting to grow up into something new. So your resurrection body will not be exactly like your old body, any more than a plant is exactly like the seed which it came from. Your body will be the fully grown, new, and improved version of your current body. However, while the body is not the seed, it is like the seed, Verse 38 says, But God gives it a body, just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Again, agriculture 101. Whatever seed you put in the ground determines what plant you are going to get. If you plant an apple seed, you get apples. If you plant a tomato seed, you get tomatoes. In the same way, who you are now is who you are going to be in the future. Like we said earlier, Jesus still had the scars after his resurrection. He was recognizable. And all the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, they still go by the same names they used before. They're the same people. But those are important people. What about us average Christians, us people who don't get mentions in the Bible? Jesus said in John 10:14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, 
and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus knows all who are his own. He even says earlier in verse 3 of that chapter that he is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Just as a shepherd knows the names of his sheep, your individual names will not be lost. Christ knows your name just as he knows the Father's name. What he's saying here is that the chances of him forgetting your name are the same chances of God the Father and God the Son forgetting each other's names. It will never happen. So first, first illustration of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body is like a plant. It is not the seed, but it is like the seed. Second illustration of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body is like an animal. Now don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying you'll be resurrected as a cow. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.39, if you look at that verse, you'll see that this is impossible. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men, and another of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. You had Agriculture 101. Here we have Zoology 101. Fish come from fish. Birds come from birds. Cows come from cows. It's obvious. What this, but this passage, um, it's not, Paul's not just making this up. It comes straight from Genesis 1. Turn over to Genesis 1, verse 20. Genesis 1, verse 20. And we are going to read from verses 20 through 27. Genesis 1, 20 through 27. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly over the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth, earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you notice that repeated phrase, after their kind? God made sea creatures after their kind, birds after their kind, and land animals after their kind. A fish is not a bird, and a bird is not a cow. They are all different, unique from one another. This is what Paul means when he says, all flesh is not the same flesh. But hopefully you're still in Genesis. Look over at Genesis 2, verses 21 through 23. Genesis 2, 21 through 23. 
So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. You see, what Adam and Eve had in common with each other, that they did not have in common with all the other creatures, is that they were the same flesh, literally from the same rib. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. What is Paul's point in taking us back to Genesis? I think there are two possible answers, and bear with me here. On the one hand, he could be saying that our future bodies will be as unique from one another as fish are from cows and cows are from humans. On the other hand, he could be saying that our current bodies will be as unique from our future bodies as fish from a cow and a cow from a human. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry. All you need to know is found in 1 Corinthians 15.38. So this is the summary of Paul's illustration, and he says this, But God gives it a body, just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. What kind of body will you have in heaven? Exactly the body God has planned for you, and it will be unique. There will be no other exactly like you. Even Adam and Eve, though they came from the same flesh, were different from one another, and so will you, too. Third illustration of your resurrection body. First, your resurrection body is like a plant. Second, it's like an animal. Third, your resurrection body is like space. Verses 40-41 through read, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Again, you don't have to turn back there, but Paul is taking us to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.16 says, So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Paul says that each of these lights the sun, moon, and stars have different levels of glory. Some shine brighter than others. The sun is called the greater light. Why? Because it shines the brightest, at least from our perspective. Next is the moon, which is called the lesser light. And last of all are the stars, which are so far away from us that we can barely see them. But even those stars have differing levels of glory, coming in all kinds of colors and sizes. I believe the point Paul is getting at with his illustration is this. If God is able to create such a wide variety, a wide scale of glory, even in this creation, how much more is he able to create a glorious body for you, a new body for each one of us? Compared to the body you have now, Your present body is like the most distant star, nearly invisible. So your resurrection body is like a plant, it's like an animal, and it's like space. 
But if we could sum up all these illustrations into two points, two points that tie everything together, it would be this. And this is found, again, in verse 38. God gives it a body just as he wished. So this is the first thing that you need to know. You will have exactly the body God wants you to have. You will have exactly the body God wants you to have. And the next thing you need to know is, is this, that you will be unique from every other person. This comes from the second half of verse 38. It says, And to each of the seeds a body of its own. So, all the illustrations coming together mean this. You will have exactly the body God wants you to have, and you will be unique from every other person. Now that Paul has given three illustrations of your resurrection body, he is going to give four concrete descriptions of your resurrection body. Four descriptions of your resurrection body. Let's read verses 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a corruptible body. It is raised an incorruptible body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. First concrete description of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body will be incorruptible. The bodies we have right now are corruptible. This means they are perishable. They go bad when they're left out for too long. They grow sick, old, tired. We all wear out eventually. But our new bodies will be incorruptible. They won't go bad. They won't grow old. You'll never be tired or sick. It's a body that will last forever. Second description of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body will be glorious. Right now, your bodies are dishonored. The idea behind this word dishonored is this. Mankind was created good. When God made Adam, he called his creation very good. However, sin has dishonored our bodies. Our bodies, which once were honorable and were meant to serve God forever, have now been dishonored by sin, and we use the very bodies that he made to serve him instead to sin against him. In the resurrection, that will no longer be the case. We will have perfectly, we will be perfectly sinless and obedient. Third thing about your resurrection body, your resurrection body will be powerful. You may have noticed Paul is still using a bit of that seed sowing metaphor from earlier. Sown, a corruptible body, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness. When he says that your body is sown in weakness, this is talking about your death. When your body is laid in the ground, it has no strength. Dead people can't move. They can't do anything. However, when your body is raised, it will have perfect strength. Does this mean you'll be able to jump over buildings? Maybe not. I hope so. But it does mean that you'll have the strength to do everything that God desires for you to do. And because your desire will always be to do God's desire, that means you will have the ability to do everything that you desire to do. Fourth description of your resurrection body. Your resurrection body will be spiritual. 
Paul is going to spend the rest of the passage on this fourth description, so we will take much longer on this description than on the other three. Let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 44. So 1 Corinthians 15, 44-49. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This passage contains a series of contrasts. Contrast between natural and spiritual, between earthly and heavenly, between the first Adam and the last Adam. All these contrasts are meant to point us to the same truth. That just as Adam had a natural, earthy body, so do all who are descended from him. And just as the last Adam, Christ, has a spiritual, heavenly body, so will all who are descended from him. We're going to unpack this one at a time. Let's start with the first Adam. The original Adam from the Garden of Eden, we read this about him in verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. In my Bible, this phrase is in all caps, meaning it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting from Genesis 2-7, which says, Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. Adam was literally formed from the earth, from dust. In our passage, in verse 47, it uses the word earthy. Isn't that a great word? Earthy. It, it just means dust. You come from the ground. You're dirt, you're mud, you're clay. However you want to put it, you're earthy. And so that's what verse 48 says. Just uh, as Adam is earthy, we also are earthy. So verse 48 says this. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. It makes sense, right? Now, just to be clear, there is nothing wrong with having an earthy body. When God formed Adam from the dust, he called his creation very good. However, these bodies, these earthy bodies, are only suited for life here on earth. They can't survive in heaven. So let's look at the last Adam. Verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, that phrase is a little bit confusing. What does it mean that the last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit? If your Bible is like mine, that word became is in italics, meaning it's a suggestion by the translators. It's not really there. It's their best guess that if Paul was going to put a verb there, that's what he would have put. But whether or not it belongs there, that verb became is not the focus. Paul's focus here is on the next word, life-giving. You see, while the first Adam was given life, the last Adam gives life. This is what sets them apart. 
Going on to verse 47, it reads, The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Christ is not like Adam. Adam came from the earth, but Christ came from heaven. Adam's body was suited only for life on earth, but Christ's body is suited for life in heaven. Adam had a natural body. Christ has a spiritual body. Now this is something that has confused me for a long time. What does it mean to have a spiritual body? And maybe some of you have the same question, because when we think of something spiritual, what do you think of? Something ghostly, something ethereal. You can't touch it. You can't see it. But that is not at all what Paul means by spiritual here. Turn over to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, um, beginning in verse 20. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. And we're going to see exactly what type of body, what a spiritual body is like. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by His working through us, which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. To put it simply, this passage is saying that Christ will make our bodies like His. If we want to know what our future resurrection bodies will look like, we just see what the Bible tells us about Christ's resurrection body. And I know you're all familiar with that. You just went to an entire camp on the resurrection. But anyway, turn over to Luke 24, and we're going to find something that maybe you have never noticed before. At least I never noticed it before. So Luke 24, beginning in verse 20, verse 36. Luke 24, 36. Now while they were telling these things, he himself, and that's Christ, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. But being startled and frightened, they were thinking they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arouse in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still not believing because of their joy, and they were still marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. You can turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. You see, we're not just guessing. We're not just making our best guess that, well, maybe, you know, Christ's body is probably physical. He, he actually says it. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So even though Christ is, his body is spiritual, it doesn't mean he's a spirit. That's kind of confusing, but I think it will make more sense. And he, the disciples were confused also. So just in case they didn't believe he was flesh and bones, he ate a fish, as if to say, not only do I have flesh and bones, I have taste buds and a stomach, too. So when Paul says that Christ has a spiritual body, it does not mean that he is not physical. 
It means his body is made for heaven, not for earth. His body is incorruptible, glorious, and powerful, and that is what makes it spiritual. Our bodies are earthy. We can only survive on earth. But Christ's body is spiritual. He can survive forever in heaven. But why the long contrast between the first and last Adam, earthy and heavenly, natural and spiritual? Paul's final point is in verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this, And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So what is the difference between a natural and spiritual body? Adam came from earth, and when he died, he returned to the earth. Christ came from heaven, and when he died, he returned to heaven. In the same way, everyone who has been born, all those from Adam, came from the earth and will return to the earth when they die. Everyone who has been born again, all those from Christ, have been born from above, from heaven, and will return to heaven when they die. First you are born, and then you are born again. To be clear, you are not in your spiritual body yet. You are still in your natural body. The body you have right now will not survive in heaven. If you don't believe me, just wait a few decades to see what happens. But we have a guarantee that this natural body will be transformed into a spiritual body. Ephesians 1.14 and 2 Corinthians 5.5, they say that the Holy Spirit himself is that guarantee. God has put his spirit in us as a guarantee that for all who have been born again, God will clothe our dead, earthly bodies with living, spiritual bodies, bodies fit for eternal life in heaven. I want to give you guys one application, one concrete application that you can take home before we're done today. And I'm going to take a decent amount of time to explain it. Because this is something that was really impactful to me as I had been studying over these past few weeks. In fact, I would say this, is, this may be the most encouraging, most impactful thing that I learned all throughout camp in our time leading up to it. Look over at 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. This is the end of chapter 15. I'm sure you're familiar with this verse after coming back from camp, but it's worth reviewing because after 57 verses of defending and explaining the resurrection, Paul waits all the way until verse 58 to finally tell us what to do about what we've learned. So 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When Paul says to be steadfast and movable, he means be steadfast in the doctrine of the resurrection. Don't let anyone shake your faith in your future resurrection. But I want to focus on the second half of the verse, which says this, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This means that all work done in the Lord, in other words, obedient work, that kind of work is not useless. It is not pointless. It is not empty. It will be rewarded. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 5, 6. 
Second Corinthians 5, verse 6, I want to show you exactly how you will be rewarded and for what kind of work you will be rewarded. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians sorry, 5, and we're going to read verses 6 through 10. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 10 says that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you may be saying, what? Believers are going to be judged too? But don't worry, this isn't the great white throne judgment. That comes later. This word for judgment seat is the Greek word bema. If you're wondering how to spell that, it's just B-E-M-A. Bema. The bema seat was a raised platform, and it could be used for two things. First, it, it could be used in a judicial, a court setting, but that's not the picture that Paul has here. What he is focusing on here is the second use is the raised platform used to reward athletes at the end of an event. You know how in the Olympics they've got that cool stage with the three different levels? The guy on top gets the gold, the middle guy gets the silver, and the guy on the bottom gets the bronze? That is exactly what Paul is picturing here. Believe it or not, they actually had Olympics in those days. Now, when it says, we will be rewarded according to good or bad deeds... This is not talking about morally good, like good deeds and evil deeds. Some of your translations, they may say evil deeds, and that could include evil deeds, um, but the idea is things that are useful and things that are useless. Things that will gain reward in heaven and things that will not gain reward in heaven. That's the difference between good deeds and bad deeds here. And I don't know about you, but I really want to know, what is going to gain reward for me in heaven? Am I going to be rewarded for the things I'm doing right now? Or am I just wasting my time doing things that are maybe fun? Maybe they're even nice. Um, maybe I'm I'm like serving or doing something good. Um, but is this going to be a useless work, the kind of thing that when I get to the Bema seat, the Lord's going to tell me, you know... That really wasn't helpful in any way at all. I don't want that to happen. And I don't think you want that to happen either. And remember, this is not for your salvation. Your salvation is already secured at the cross. You will not be at the great white throne judgment. But this judgment, the Bema seat, is for reward. And you will have more or less reward depending on how you use your time right now. So, I want to be really practical. I'm going to give you five ways to be rewarded at the Bema Seat. Five ways to receive reward from Christ when you appear before Him after your resurrection. First way to be rewarded. Be insulted for Christ's sake. Yes, really. Be insulted for Christ's sake. 
Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Second way to be rewarded, give in secret. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says this, Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you third way to be rewarded pray in secret Matthew 6 continues and when you pray you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men truly I say to you they have their reward in full but you when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fourth, love those who hate you. Love those who hate you. Luke six thirty-five through 33-35 says this, And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Fifth, and this is my favorite because it applies to every one of you at any time. Maybe you weren't insulted for Christ's sake this week. Maybe you don't have any mortal enemies in your life that you can love. But you can all do this. This is your fifth way to receive reward. Serve a believer just for being a believer. Serve a believer just for being a believer. Matthew ten forty through 42 says this. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is Christ talking. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. If you do anything for a fellow believer simply because they are a believer, you will be rewarded for that service, even if that service is as small as giving them a cup of cold water to drink. In Jesus' eyes, if you serve any of his disciples, it is as if you are serving him. Service to one another will be rewarded just as if it was service to Christ himself. So for these five reasons, these five rewards, 
We can agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we've had together, and thank you for all these youth, and um, for that we get the opportunity to look to our future resurrection. I know it sometimes it feels far from from them. It it feels far away from me very often. But I pray that it would be ever closer, ever present on our minds that we are going to die, but that when we die, we will be transformed into something new. But like what we were before, we will be the same, but better, incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual. We will have bodies fit for an eternity in heaven. So with that in mind, please strengthen each one of us, encourage us, help us to stop living for the present, to stop just trying to have fun, stop trying to be comfortable, stop trying to avoid pain all the time. Instead, help us to serve, to serve one another in a way that will be rewarded and we know that you will reward it because service to one another is service to Christ so I pray that you would encourage each one of us in their daily walks and for those who do not know you who do not have the hope of the resurrection please cause them to come to faith even tonight I pray that this whole evening would be pleasing to you Amen